Welcome to the Dig In Travel Podcast, where travel and other digital professionals level up their marketing skills by listening to the top industry experts. And now here's your host, Istok Franco, founder of DigInTravel.com, your number one resource for travel, digital, e-commerce, and marketing. Hi, this is Istok, and welcome to episode nine of the Dig In Travel Podcast. Before we start today, I just wanted to tell you that I'm finalizing our first yearly research, the 2020 Airline Digital Optimization Research Paper, where we surveyed 49 airlines. Now, apart from the benchmarks, I want to provide you the best possible advice on digital optimization, so part of the research is also interviewing digital optimization and experimentation leaders. In our past episodes, you could listen to Stefan Tonke from Harvard Business School, two experts from Google, Gartner, and two other airline chief digital officers. This interview with Ronnie Kohavi, vice president and technical fellow at Airbnb, is the last in this series. Ronnie has worked in the fields of data mining and machine learning for more than 25 years. He's one of the world's top authorities in the area of experimentation, and he's also a co-author of the book Trustworthy Online Controlled Experiments, practical guide to A-B testing. Before he joined Airbnb, Ronnie grew the experimentation platform team at Microsoft to over 110 data scientists, developers, and program managers to accelerate innovation at Microsoft through trustworthy analysis and experimentation. But Ronnie is not just an experimentation expert. In the past, he was also director of data mining and personalization at Amazon. So he has a tons of experience in the area of personalization. And apart from experimentation, personalization is one topic I really wanted to talk about with Ronnie. You see, I've seen so many articles and people talk about airlines and personalization. Almost all these articles and tips claim that it can't be done without data science and machine learning. On the other hand, there are not so many resources that explain how you can know whether or not personalization and machine learning will actually work. And you'll find even fewer resources that talk about experimentation as the key element of your airline personalization program. Why are personalization and machine learning such popular topics among airlines, yet experimentation is rarely mentioned? How are personalization and experimentation really connected? Now, I believe if you really want to be great at personalization, and if you want to understand the value of your personalization activities, you need to combine both. And Ronnie shared his views on this, and he also talked about how to define the proper metrics. He shared some great examples from his book and stories from his work at Amazon and Microsoft. He's really one of the best experts in this field, so I hope you'll enjoy his insights as much as I did. Now, please enjoy the show. Hi, Ronnie, and welcome to the Digging Trail podcast. Hello, hello, Istok. Before we deep dive into your book and talk about experimentation, uh, let me ask you one thing. We both work in travel industry, and I heard in one of your past interviews that you took a sabbatical to travel around the world. So I assume you like traveling? Yes, absolutely. 
And actually, yeah, when we were discussing how to do this interview, you told me that you were in my home country, Slovenia, last July, which really make, made me think how far we came that a person from California, from high-tech Silicon Valley, came to this small green country that nobody knows about. Well, obviously, obviously, I knew about it, and it was a it was a beautiful trip to Slovenia, and I went to Croatia. So tell me, how do you look at travel, especially now when things that we thought were given to us seem a bit more abstract, even distant? Um, travel is changing, as we all know, and you know, there's a saying that prediction is hard, especially with respect to the future. And one of the things <laughs> I learned is that uh, I'm not going to try and predict things that I know little about. And I have to admit that things are changing here regularly. Uh, news are coming out, the ability to, to be able to treat or to, uh, to test people at high scale at lower cost. Uh, vaccine, these are all parameters that have very wide confidence intervals about when they'll be available. So very, very hard. What is clear is that, you know, there is a significant change happening and we're going to have to observe and deal with it. Yes, for sure. A lot of change is happening, not only travel, but I think with a lot of businesses. So when we look at the topic that you cover in your book, experimentation and uh, basically how to do trustworthy online controlled experiments. This is the title of your book. Do you, how do you see the role of experimentation in, let's say, this kind of more turbulent times? Do you see, is it, is, does it increase in your opinion or is it the same? How do you look at that? Um, I think experimentation is fundamental to using data to help improve experiences for the business and for the users. Um, I think it's mostly orthogonal to whether a specific sector is having, you know, tough times or better times, but you still want to work on improving the user experience. Uh, the main difference is that the number of users that you have may go up and down uh, in just like it does in seasons. Um, these rough times, you know, the number of users that visit travel sites, hospitality are certainly lower and that reduces what is called statistical power or the ability to detect uh, small differences. But, you know, improving the user experience for the users, uh, these are still things that we should strive to do in these times and controlled experiments or A-B tests are the best way to do that. Uh, in fact, there's an opportunity to maybe, you know, step back and, you know, regroup, try to find out what can be done. There's some more ambitious projects, less ambitious projects, rebuild your infrastructure, work on improving what we call the trustworthiness of your experimentation system so that when it does give you a result, you can trust it uh, and trust the statistics behind it. Going back, or maybe to the beginning, to your book, Tr uh, Trustworthy Online Controlled Experiment, uh, a practical guide to A-B testing. Who would you say is your book for? Is it for people who are new to experimentation or is it also for people that want to do some more advanced things and are looking into some more advanced, uh, let's say, topics? Yeah, so that's a, it's a good question that we grappled in the, you know, when we decided to co-author the book, which, by the way, I should recognize my co-authors, uh, Diane Tang from Google um, and Yaju from LinkedIn. Um, when we first thought about the book, we wanted to write 
a book that straddles between being just the stories behind some of the interesting experiments. There are several books out there that tell you some good stories and some of the very technical statistical books out there. They're great at telling you the statistics, but we wanted to sort of bridge that gap and build a book that starts off with some successes or failures, very interesting experiments, uh, but then goes into the practical problems that you see out there when you try to implement the mechanisms and use the controlled experiment statistics that have been well known since you know R.F. Fisher in the 1920s uh, to make them useful in practice for the business. So the book is built so that the first two chapters are should be read by everybody, but then there are specific sections in the book, uh, certain parts that we've built that are geared at people interesting interested in specific problems. So if you want to understand, you know, an end-to-end example, we have a chapter on a, what's called a slowdown experiment to understand the importance of performance. Um, if you're interested in understanding how to build metrics, there are, it's one of those areas that's very, very hard to get right and very important to get right when you start to run A-B testing. So we have a couple of chapters on metrics in general and specifically on what's called the OEC, the overall evaluation criterion. We talk about some issues related to institutional memory and how do you remember the successes that you've run um, experiments in the past and how you learn and how you evolve those. We talk about ethics. Um, the book is not meant necessarily to be read end to end. The idea is that the first few chapters should be read by everyone. Um, and then depending on what you're doing in the organization, you may want to read some parts more deeply than others or just skim um, some of the advanced topics. Um, you know, an example of an advanced topic is how you deal with client side experiments how you deal with instrumentation, if you're statistically oriented, um, what are the, the randomization units that you use, how you ramp up experiments to make this trade-off between you know, the speed of ramping up and exposing it to more users, what's called exposure control, and the risk of exposing too fast and hence having some egregious error impact many, many customers. There's you know, engineering questions on how you scale. And of course, you know, we talk about the statistics behind controlled experiments, some of the techniques that we have found useful. And finally, trust. You know, are you able to run AA tests? Uh, this is a very, very important idea. You know, given my many years running controlled experiments, I think some of the most interesting learnings that we've had are from running these simple AA tests, meaning split the traffic into two. There is no difference. Unlike an AB test, an AA test gives both populations the same exact variation. And then looking at whether your system actually says, look, there's usually not a statistically significant difference. And you should be close, you know, if you're running with a classical 95% confidence interval, it should flag that 5% of the time there is a difference in an AA test. So this is basically what you're saying is just, that's why you have the trustworthy online controlled experiments in Absolutely. the title to, to understand how basically statistics works, how tools work, basically before even jumping, what most people do now, jumping into AB testing right away, just understanding that what you do really works and it's really trustful. Absolutely. I think trustworthy is one of the key differences between um, some of the better systems out there, some of the tests that you're able to do to just tell your users the result that I've produced is actually trustworthy and passes some 
important tests that would indicate that there's something wrong with the experiments. So whether there's an AA test or what's called a sample ratio mismatch, these are very, very important tests to run to make sure that something isn't wrong in the underlying system in how you interpret the statistics and how you estimate some of the more technical aspects like standard deviation of key metrics, which I have to admit, we got wrong in the early days of experimentation and it took a while to understand the issues and build the infrastructure to do them correctly. And the most useful mechanism is this AA test. How you describe your book, basically, this is this was my user experience. So I read the first two chapters, then browsed through the others, and then now I'm getting back and deep diving into the, some of the topics that were, let's say, uh, a little bit uh, more abstract to me and uh, now trying to understand. So I think it's a unique book out there for all people in digital optimization and experimentation because it allow, it provides both a high value, a high level introduction, but also deep dives into some of the areas that you mentioned. Maybe one question uh, you mentioned, OEC or overall evaluation criteria, the metric. This is also, apart from having a trustworthy system platform process, one of the mistakes I see when people start with experimentation that they're basically optimizing or measuring the wrong uh, metrics or wrong criteria, which then makes it a lot more difficult uh, difficult to make the real difference. How do you look at that or what what would you what is your experience with defining the the, the true correct metrics for optimization and testing? Yeah, it's an it's an excellent question. I think there's a few things to say about the overall evaluation criterion. Um, one is if the organization is able to map their strategy into a set of metrics that are measurable in the short term, then it has achieved a huge amount of progress. Um, when I start working with teams and I had the fortune of uh, working with multiple groups at Microsoft, many of them very, very big, and usually the process that we go through um, in the early stages is talking, understanding the dynamics of the business and mapping some of the strategy into metrics. Um, and it's a hard problem. I think it's, you know, these are brainstorming sessions. People come up with ideas. Sometimes they're, con they're very sure of something, um, but it turns out to be that it doesn't stand up to scrutiny and has to be evolved over time. So I actually want to give a few examples of that that I think are very, very important to understand. Um, let's say you, you take the simple approach, you're some sort of a business and you're, you're saying, I want to increase revenue, right? You know, if you're, take example, you know, two of our, uh, Diane and I come, have a lot of experience in the search business, uh, Google and uh, Bing. If you say, I want to just increase revenue and there is no countervailing metric to balance off the the fact that you can make more revenue short term by putting more ads on the page, you will suffer, right? Because you're going to make a large amount of short-term money, but users will abandon and leave. So the, the trick that you have to think about is that you're measuring something in the short term, yet you want to be predictive of the long term. And that is the hard thing to come up with when you think about the metrics that you should be optimizing. Um, in the example of search engines, what we realized and you know well understood by now is that, of course, as you add more ads, 
the relevancy of those ads starts to decline because you're running out of inventory and you start to annoy users. And we have done our tests and we know that when we put more ads, users start to abandon. And so now there's this trade-off of saying, how much money do you want to make in the short term in order to fund the long term? And you know, the countervailing metric is the space that you take on the page, the vertical real estate that you allocate. And now it, it comes out to be this problem, which is kind of very interesting, which is a constraint optimization problem. Assuming I allocate a certain budget of vertical space to ads, what is the most efficient use of that space on average? So some queries might have no ads. Some queries will have multiple ads, but I want to make sure that on average, I'm using a limited amount of real estate so that I keep the quality of the ads high enough that it either helps users or hurts them just a bit and keeps the business humming along. It's a nice example. And I was started to think of a similar problem, let's say in my industry, airline industry, with so-called ancillary revenue. So we are trying to, as people go through the poop king now they were trying airlines were aggressively trying to upsell different ancillary products like bags seats and stuff like that if you take let's optimization of back uptake it could be similar short term you could increase the metric revenue but long term you would uh, you would piss off the customer and uh, maybe long term they wouldn't return i think you had one similar example with uh, amazon and email yeah. Uh, then when you can you talk about that? Yeah, happy, happy to talk about. It. I think it's a great example. In fact, I'll I'll go back and and say that um, when I started to first um, work in e-commerce, it was at a company called Blue Martini Software. It was a startup that IPO'd. Uh, I was <laughs> one of the early employees, employee number ten, and we built this infrastructure to build e-commerce sites with very interesting analytics around it. Um, one of the products that we provided was the ability to send emails. And if you just look at sending emails and you attribute revenue to clicks coming from emails, you end up with sort of a very skewed picture that the more emails you send, the more money you're going to make because it's a sort of monotonically increasing function. The more emails you send, even if the click-through is low, it's always positive because you're going to attribute some revenue to those emails. So the first mistake is that not every email that you send that gets a click through is actually incremental to revenue. It's very conceivable that the customers would have come and purchased some of those products independently of your email. So that's why it's important to have a control group and say, here's the population of users that I'm going to mail. Let me keep a certain percentage out, not mail them, and then see the lift in revenue from the treatment that gets the emails, the control group does not get the emails. And this, by the way, this seems obvious to people working in the area of controlled experiments. It was very hard to convince our customers at the time that they should be holding back 10% of their emails just for the sake of measuring that lift. And in fact, many of them did not want to do that. They felt this was dropping money on the table, leaving it on the floor. Why would they decrease their revenues uh, for, e for emails by 10%? But over time, what you see is that as you start 
to email customers more and more, it feels like spam and customers start to ignore your emails and then later on start to unsubscribe. Um, and that's, that's the story that I usually tell um, about Amazon. When I joined Amazon, um, we did run controlled experiments on email. That was done even before my time. But they were generally positive. So anybody that came up with an idea of, hey, let's mail users who bought from a single author uh, some book. Let's mail them if that author comes up with a second book. Seems reasonable. Start an email program, runs like, you know, runs great. We make revenue even relative to the control group. And then you introduce another program and you say, well, let's find similarities, you know, use an association algorithm or just one-to-one recommendations. And then you start another email campaign. And as you add more and more campaigns, they all seem like they're positives, but you start to hear from users that, hey, we're spamming them too much. And that's where you have to say, okay, there is a trade-off here. Every user that unsubscribes from our emails, we lose the ability to market to them through this email channel. And so we lose the lifetime value of that channel. And that could be pretty important. And so when we started to do is we said, okay, what is the lifetime value of the email channel for a user that unsubscribes? And then we, for every campaign, we evaluated what is the percentage of people that unsubscribe multiplied by that lifetime value that we just lost and compare that to the lift from the emails. And shocking as it was to many, many people, um, most of our email campaigns were actually negative under that metric. So that was an amazing insight and a way to control to find that countervailing metric that helps you understand that you know you can't just have a metric that's monotonically in- increasing with an action because you'll just do that more and more. There has to be some sort of a balancing metric that tells you that you're do- not doing as well. It's also example where once you realize that you know this lifetime value um, is a large number when people unsubscribe, you, you change the way people unsubscribe and tell them, hey, we realize you didn't like this email. Let us unsubscribe you just from this email program or campaign of, that you didn't like. But let's keep the other email programs running for you. And that lowers the loss of an unsubscribe from the ability to market them on all uh, email campaigns to just that single campaign. And so it reduces that countervailing um, metric. And we were able to get you know, significantly better campaigns coming out, high quality campaigns with a lower cost to unsubscribe. Um, great example. I'll share actually one, one more example, which is kind of a funny one that happened to me um, at Microsoft. Um, we were sitting down with the Microsoft support team, which has a website you know, one of the first meetings that we had, I said, wow, this is a support site. Um, what is the metric that you're optimizing for? Um, and people, you know, people in the room said, hey, Ronnie, we read your papers. Uh, we talked ourselves. We know exactly what the term OEC means. And we think our OEC should be time. Time on site. It's a metric, by the way, that we've used in other places like portals. But in this case, this is a support site. And I said, wow, does it help? when somebody comes to a support site and spend a lot of time on it? Or is it the case that you actually want them to solve the problem quickly and get out? (laughs) So time as a metric is not even directionally obvious. 
Um, and it was kind of interesting that, that some of the people in the room thought that increasing time is a good thing. And some of the people in the room thought that decreasing time is a good thing. But clearly, it is not the right metric for a support site. Great examples. And I remembered when you said that when you come start uh, looking at the metrics of the email program and all the experiments were positive, I remembered one uh, interesting law uh, from your uh, book when you say that if some figures jump out too much or they are too obvious, they're probably wrong. So this is probably what happened in this case, right? Correct. Yeah, it's a, it's a saying that we've said a lot when, you know, when, when something is too good to be true, it really usually is. So if you run an experiment and you suddenly find out that you've increased revenue by, you know, 10% or 20%, I've seen some results out there where people say, look, you know, we increased revenue by 40% by doing this thing. It's probably wrong. Like the, the opportunity to increase revenue so much is so extremely rare that the bias should be, wait, this, this is so, so many standard deviations off what we would have expected that let's just validate the results. And nine out of 10 times um, when results are too good to be true, we dig deeper and we find that there are indeed, there was some problem with the experiment, some problem with the instrumentation, um, you could even have just, you know, lucky or unlucky randomization um, that causes you to do this. And this is, again, back to the area of trust. By investigating these, if you find out the flaw, you can build it into your system so that this comes in as a check for future experiments to make sure that you haven't violated whatever it is that you found. Now, there are breakthroughs. You know, the book starts with an example that increased, you know, Bing's revenue by over 10% or at the time was $100 million. Um, and it was shocking. But in order to validate that, we ran that experiment multiple times, replicated it, you know, dug into anything that could possibly inviolate it, you know, violate the result. But it turned out to be one of those breakthroughs. Could it be also, Ronnie, because this is maybe my experience, what I see, and I'm really curious what you saw because you managed experimentation at huge companies like Microsoft, Amazon, now Airbnb. I see now that even experimenters, we as a community sometimes get too much into this, let's say, vanity metrics of how many experiments we run and we want most of the experiments to be winning. On the other hand, a very interesting quote about innovation and experimentation when a guy basically said, okay, so if every, every experiment that you're running is winning and uh, or the first one, you're probably not innovating. Uh, so this is maybe, it's not only the metrics how we do, but maybe how bold or uh, how innovative we are with these experiments. Yes. So there's a few things that come to mind here with the question. One is you talk about sort of vanity metrics. Um, again, this goes back to the OEC. Are you really measuring the right thing that you should be measuring? I think that that is the, one of those key lessons that takes a while to understand and evolve over time, you know, an example from Bing is that uh, we used to set the metric, but then as we learn more, we allowed ourselves to morph it and improve it to handle the cases that over the year we learned were incorrect. And so every year we used to sort of modify our OEC and there was a team of people that worked on understanding those interesting cases. Um, there's also a, you know, a funny story of, you know, the name that uh, some people give to these, which are watermelon metrics. You know, they tend to look green, but really when you dig inside, there's a lot of redness. So as far as, you know, the, the pipeline of ideas, 
that's a you know you made a good observation that sometimes if all you do is try to get a small number of wins then you might go for you know very small incremental improvements uh, that leads you to to these you know minor differences and some you know probably some of them are wrong because you're running a large number of small ones that are you know close to zero but by chance some of them will be positive um, so it is important to to think about the fact that you don't want to go there with small incremental changes you want to have a portfolio of projects some that are very bold high risk uh, but also high reward um, and you should expect many of them to fail. Um, and then some of those that are more incremental, you look at some industry uh, best practices, you learn from them, you try them out, you develop your own, um, and then you move incrementally. So I actually have these, you know, sort of two examples in the book. One is the overall statistics that we found at Microsoft over a large number of experiments is that about one third of them are actually successful meaning they improve that OEC in a statistically significant manner. About one-third. Only one-third. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very interesting that it's only one-third that are positive. One-third tend to be neutral. You've done something, doesn't you know, move the OEC enough. And then there's one-third, which I think is the most surprising part. One-third of the experiments actually hurt. Like here it is, you built this project that everybody, you know, at least some people thought, this would be good for the customer and for the business. And it turns out that, you know, it was based on some anecdotes or there were bugs in it. And when it actually shipped, it was negative. Um, so this idea of approximately one third, one third, one third was true for some of the, the products that we worked with um, in areas that have been optimized for a while, like, you know, Bing, where, you know, hundreds of experiments run concurrently all the time. You know, this program has been running for several years. It's actually harder to find a successful example so that one third that I quoted in the beginning was actually decreasing over time. And we ended up with a success ratio much closer to about 10 to 20% of ideas that were actually beneficial, meaning improving the, the metrics that we had set. True. And for example, if let's say experimentation leaders like companies like Amazon, Microsoft, or LinkedIn see one third of experimentation or experiments having a positive impact, then it makes you think if you don't do this and you just roll out changes, uh, <laughs> what is the impact? Yeah, yeah. So absolutely right. I mean, the, if you if all you do is basically implement every change that somebody thinks is important, whether it's you know some low level person or the executives um, out there, then it's very likely that some of them will just be significant degradations. And unless you are able to run controlled experiments that give you that sensitivity to realize that you're not doing something well or to find that metric that is, you know, degrading, you may just be, you know, treading in place, uh, which I think is the, the pattern that I see a lot. People will, you know, launch something, they'll look at the time series graph, very hard to detect differences because it's a very, you know, volatile graph with ups and downs, not just you know, seasonality, but also day-to-day, -day, you see some variations. Very hard to find that you've improved or degraded something by one, two, three percent. Normally, if, if the change is not resulting in, you know, five, six, seven, ten percent changes, you're not going to see it in a time series graph. And so you're just launching things, sometimes taking a very long time to realize that what you did was bad and then having to roll it back. 
The beauty of controlled experiments is that you can detect very, very small changes relatively quickly um, and then understand which ones you should, you know, determine as winners and ship them and which ones are losers that you have to basically reiterate. And that's another problem. You know, do you, you, you iterate on an idea or do you say, okay, let's fail fast. This area is not promising. Let's try something new. This podcast is supported by Pros. If you want to get ideas to experiment, please check out Pro's webinar and presentation, Rebooting Airline Digital Retailing, with more than 30 real airline examples on the Resource Center at pros.com. With more than 30 years of experience and a legacy in the airline industry, Pro's provides AI-powered solutions that optimize selling in the digital economy. Pro's customers, who are leaders in their markets, benefit from decades of data science expertise infused into our industry solutions across revenue management, retail, and distribution. Maybe one last thing that I wanted to touch is the topic of data and personalization. In our airline industry, personalization is, uh, let's say, a big topic. Uh, Basically, all airlines wanted to go there and wanted to personalize and look at uh, some lessons from retail, like from Amazon, and they build some recommendation uh, engines for, let's say, ancillary products. So people that bought A, bought B, or viewed A and viewed B. So some of this logic. Your background is not only experimentation, but basically you started in data and you worked on personalization. How do you see experimentation and person- uh, personalization work together, if, if they work together at all, in your opinion? Yeah. Yeah, so great question. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You know, when I joined Amazon, I ran the data mining and personalization team where, you know, recommendations were basically a key effort. Um, you know, at the time there was already people who bought X bought Y, which is a you know, one of the most successful uh programs that were built. And we built around this um several variations that were really useful. People who searched for X bought Y. Uh, people who viewed X bought Y, people who viewed X viewed Y. Um, these were all very successful examples, and you know each was positive on its own in being able to move the key metrics that we wanted to move at Amazon. But I do think it's also important to realize that you know personalization, while highly beneficial, is not going to result in you know sort of this some some of the high expectations that people have out there that this will increase your revenues by 50%. So one, you have to take a realistic view that, yeah, you're going to get, you know, 10, 15, 20% improvement from doing personalization, uh, but it takes a while to, to build it correctly. It takes a while to evolve it and come up with the right trade-offs, again, to make sure that you show it at the right time and you don't know users and you are able to properly handle some of the cold start problems that happen on new products. The, the beauty of these two domains and why I'm, I'm sort of attracted to both is that personalization or any predictive model that you have to try to help users, you know, this, this means also search. This means, you know, anytime you rank something on the page, you're able to, to use that, whether it's personalized to the user or whether it's personalized or contextualized to the population, um, you got to use controlled experiments because they're the best scientific method that we know today to evaluate whether what you're building is useful. And so the, this things, you know, these two go hand in hand. Um, I'll say even broader, it's not just personalizations. Any machine learning algorithm that you build to do something, the best way to evaluate 
you know, iterations of the model is through controlled experiments. And we see that today as, as machine learning and AI are being used more and more in the industry. Obviously, people are starting to use controlled experiments more heavily to evaluate those models and to be able to launch the challenger to the current champion. It's, it's a good metaphor that I like. Whatever you have today that you've optimized is sort of the champion. And what you want to show is that my new model is challenging the champion and can perform better. There's a, there's a technical term here, which I, uh, I'll, I'll introduce to the audience if people haven't heard about it, which is called the bias variant trade-off. Very, very important. So technically, if you look at the error that machine learning algorithms uh, or any predictive model uh, do, it can de be really decomposed into three terms. One is this irreducible noise, stuff that you cannot do better. The, the Oracle with all the data, that is the best they can do. And then there are two terms called bias and variance. And it turns out that this decomposition helps us in assessing whether our algorithm has some bias, meaning it's unable to handle some of the complexity. You know, think of drawing a linear line against a set of points. Um, if the line is not linear, if it's, you know, parabolic or some exponential, you're going to do well. You're going to have a high bias term. Uh, but if you try to fit a very high degree polynomial, you're going to overfit the data and small tweaks in the data are going to result in the model being very, very different. This is what's called the variance term. And so that trade-off between these two is very fundamental to many machine learning algorithms. And a lot of our intuition usually tries to decrease the bias. We typically don't have good intuition about the noise or the fragmentation or, or the variance that we introduce by you know, working with more complicated models. Uh, and this is where, again, experimentation can help us understand um, if the model is really performing well in practice and generalizing or is just able to perform well on the training set, overfitting the data and not producing the results that we need. What I see with a lot, not only airlines, but also mostly airlines, is a lot try to jumpstart. So not even master experimentation and A-B testing and let's say start with just some rule-based personalization, not algorithmic one, but rule-based, understand the audience and basically A-B test different variants and to see what really works on different segments of the audience. But they try to buy a fancy vendor-based uh, machine learning run personalization engine and we expect that machine will figure out the personalization for us. So a lot of times I see that Basically, experimentation not only helps to validate, but it's also you you see if the personalization basically that you're running the the variations that they work. Yeah, there's nothing wrong, by the way, with starting out with some rules. There may be some simple rules out there that you can apply that work wonderfully well. It is true that over time, as you start to complicate the rules, as you try to you know build these system you know so-called expert systems things get out of hand and it's very hard to manage the system. And this is why machine learning uh, is sometimes the right approach that allows you to you know, feed all that in data into some algorithm, black box type of thing that you can then evaluate. And again, it's not clear that it will do better. Every one of these things, every one of these hypotheses should be tested with controlled experiments to make sure that you are indeed moving um, forward and that your new algorithm is beating the expert system or that the more sophisticated algorithm is indeed doing better. A lot of the times people make the mistake of you know, complicating things enough that the performance of the page starts to degrade. And we have observed that performance is a critical, critical factor 
in the success of people, uh, oftentimes slowing down the page will result in worse user interactions and more abandonment. There's a, you know, the, the book has a, has a speed matters chapter that talks about some of these experiments that ran at Google and Amazon and, you know, mostly at Bing showing that even a small number of milliseconds can map into large amounts of money and user metrics that are you know, degrading or improving depending on the direction. We see the similar on, for example, in travel, in airline or OTAs, in the search result pages where you basically display the inventory uh, or let's say meta searches. This is the same thing, which is the crucial page where all the abandonment happened. Absolutely. The chapter that you described, I think to me, it was a great thing of how to scientifically really see the impact because I still see a lot of people guessing. We know we see these stats every second matters, but I think if you don't run the experiment and really don't run the correct test to see it on your data, I don't think people really believe that. Yeah. Okay, Ronnie, this was great talk. Uh, thank you for all the insights. Maybe at the end, just tell me uh, or tell the audience where people can find more about your work and how they can uh, get your book, which I, I recommend to everybody. Yeah, so the book has a, has a website, uh, experimentguy.com, where not only are we you know, linking to the appropriate Amazon pages where you can get the book, but we also have some online chapters where we're, we're adding information that interests users, uh, including some of the history. Uh, controlled experiments have an amazing history in the medical domain. Um, some examples of, you know, that, that I'm sort of interested in, uh, in finding and enlarging is a set of experiments that were observationally motivated, meaning some people found some what appears to be a relationship, but then after the observation resulted in some action in the real world, the control experiment was run and it was deemed either not at all um, causal or sometimes causal in the other direction. So refuted observational examples uh, is a fun chapter for people that are looking at those and that's available on, online at this experimentguide.com site. Yeah, I will include uh, all these links in the podcast note. Thanks again, Ronnie. And uh, I will certainly follow your work in the future and looking forward to interact and uh, see more of examples. Thank you. Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by digintravel.com. Digintravel is your number one resource when it comes to airline and travel digital marketing and e-commerce. Visit digintravel.com to find the latest digital trends and white papers with in-depth airline digital benchmarks.